for Pacifica Radio, July 17th, 2022. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com, and I'm the editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,700 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter, at scotthortonshow. All right, uh, very happy to introduce... My guest this week, live in the studio, my colleague, Patrick McFarlane from the Libertarian Institute. Welcome to the show, Patrick. How are you doing, sir? Doing good, man. Thanks, Scott. Uh, very happy to have you here. Now, one of the hottest controversies on this planet is the Chinese regime in Beijing's treatment of the Uyghurs, the Turkic, uh, ethnic Turkic uh, Muslim sect or, or population in the Xinjiang province in western uh, China. And, of course, uh, these people are caught in great game politics between America and China and so forth. And the accusations against the regime there uh, are of genocide, uh, quite frankly. And there's a brand new report out um, about uh, different modes of oppression inside the uh, Chinese state. And, of course, war hawks of all descriptions uh, love to glom on to these testimonies, and they get passed around um, as sort of received knowledge, but we never really get too much of the uh, real background to uh, what's going on in the Xinjiang province. And this is something that you've done a lot of work on in the past. So I guess let me first ask you what it was about this story that caught your attention in the first place. Well, this happened back during when the beginning of COVID was going on. And I was watching Tim Pool a whole lot. And there was an episode where Tim Pool had Luke Rudkowski on. And he had this, this other group called China Uncensored on. And some of the craziest accusations were, were being lobbed around, like organ harvesting, um, like systematized rape, and all these things going on in Xinjiang. And some of it just seemed too outlandish to me. So I really wanted to look into it. and kind of figure out for myself what was real and what wasn't, or what could be supported by evidence, because it was really just being stated as fact. Mm -hmm. So what did you find? Well, I looked through and I found a lot of credibility issues, and I found uh, United States NGOs, and I found State Department members just lobbying these accusations back and forth. Um, so in, in looking through that, there were a lot of neoconservatives uh, mainly Adrian Zen, someone who's been published at the New Lines Institute and the Jamestown Foundation. And uh, he's a senior fellow at the Victims of Communism uh, Memorial Foundation. And so I, I also read the work of uh, Max Blumenthal and Gareth Porter at the Gray Zone. And uh, Jeet Singh did a lot of work over there, too, really uncovering these connections. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, this character, Adrian Zenz, comes up over and over uh, in discussions of Chinese oppression of the Uyghurs. And in fact, I'm not aware of any of these stories that don't somehow originate with him. And I've had people, 
you know, when I say, geez, find me something that's not by him, they go, oh, yeah, well, here, how about this and this and this? And I go, well, actually, those are all by him, too. They all are, are exclusively based on his work or whatever it is. So this guy, Adrian Zenz, he must uh, live in Xinjiang province or be a professor of anthropology down at the University of Science or something and, and knows a special thing or two about this subject, right, or not? Well, to my knowledge, he's never been to, to Xinjiang. To my knowledge, I know he does speak, or well, he's a German anthropologist. But to my knowledge, he does speak Chinese, but he's never really been there. And in a lot of this, there's other work done. Like there's certain Australian defense uh, think tanks who have come out with pieces saying, "Yeah, no, that's him too." Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there are people he cites too. Oh, uh -huh. uh, but it's all it's all open source intelligence peering at satellite photos, and and allegedly they have these uh, these folks coming forward on the ground who have visited these places and, and saw what these facilities are. But, but that's just kind of put forward as fact. Mm -hmm. I guess let's get to the recent news here. There's a, a recent report out, and I guess I wonder to what degree you've examined it and what you've figured out so far. Yeah, so I have a new piece out at the Libertarian Institute called Credibility in the Xinjiang Police Files. And the, the Xinjiang Police Files was this blockbuster uh, hack that Adrian Zenz published in the last week of May of this year. And what it purports to show is, he says there's uh, 2,800 prisoner photos of individual prisoners who were detained in Xinjiang, that there's 300,000 personal files on people that were under some kind of uh, surveillance or had been through the system in Xinjiang, uh, 23,000 detainee records, and 10 plus camp police instructions. And so ostensibly what this is, is it's a hacker that anonymously provided these files to Adrian Zenz, and it was the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation that published them in the last week of May. Mm -hmm. And then, so what do these files indicate? Well, what I really tried to do, and I, I have more pieces forthcoming where I really want to take a look at the files themselves, mm -hmm. but in this piece that I published, I really took a look at the origin of the files and, and some credibility issues with what was put forward. And so some of those credibility issues, uh, one, I mean, itself is the role of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Uh, two is Zenz's own background and credibility issues that have been pointed out with that, most notably by Max Blumenthal and Gareth Porter. Um, but the other thing is that uh, specifically with these files, there, there are some claims that they have been edited. And there were certain people on, on Twitter, uh, the public, I think these are Chinese expats, so they take a look at these files and found metadata edits. So some of them were provided um, in Word document or RTF form. And if you go through the metadata, you can see who last edited the document and how long they were on that document page. And they looked through that and saw that Adrian Zenz had edited some of the documents. And there was another person named Ilshat Kokbor um, who had edited the documents. So. And, and later on, when some people started to point out that there were edits to these documents, it was confirmed by the VOC, the Victims of Communism, in Adrian Zenz, a footnote was added saying, explaining it away, basically, oh, well, we didn't edit the, the actual contents of the documents. It's just, you know, we went through and, and tweaked a few things. Uh, but I think one of the most important things that came about was realizing that this Ilshat Kokbor is... Um, He's a senior consultant at Booz Allen Hamilton, which is a national security contractor. Mm -hmm. That's where Edward Snowden worked. 
Yes, yeah. When he liberated the Snowden documents there. So, and, and so he, he was employed there. But the other thing about Ilshad Kokbor, but he's currently still employed at Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, but the other thing about him is that he has connections. Uh, he's the director of China Affairs at the World Uyghur Congress, which is a national endowment for democracy-funded and connected institution. So like Elizabeth Cheney's Syrian National Council that they tried to set up before yeah. the Syrian war there. And, and the, well, the other thing is that he's the former president of uh, the Uyghur American Association. And all of these foundations are involved in, uh, they're involved in these uh, escapees from Xinjiang, these alleged escapees. And so these, these uh, escape defectors, if you will, they, they go, they're caught up with these organizations. And the more stories that they tell, the, the more extreme their treatment was in Xinjiang. Yeah, and I remember reading an article by Bernard at Moon of Alabama blog about this one uh, Uyghur expat lady who went from, I worked at the jail, and it wasn't that bad, but yeah, it was a jail, to I was incarcerated in that jail, to and then changed from, and all they ever fed us was rice and we almost all died, and then changed that to, and they force-fed us pork even though we were Muslims. and all, And it's the same lady who just thinks that Bernard isn't keeping track, but he is. Yeah, and I, I believe that was Sarah Grill South Bay. Um, and there was another in, individual named um, Turnsene Ziawudun, and she had other allegations uh, of forced rape at the camp, but later retracted that and said, well, we were never beaten or treated violently at the, at the facilities. Um, so there's a lot of credibility issues with it, and, and we don't get a chance to cross-examine them sure. in, in some kind of forum. Well, and look, expatriates who are talking bad about their own government back home to a government that has an interest in them doing so are to be presumed liars, just the same as, you know, that could be considered one of the major lessons of Iraq War II if we didn't already know it, that you just can't believe what they say unless they can prove it. Yeah, and, and this, that really touches on what the broader context of all this is, because these allegations of terrible treatment of the Uyghurs are maybe one of the biggest facets of the new Cold War against China. Right. And so uh, let's get into that aspect. But let me back up with a little bit of history here. Uh, I don't know if you remember this part. I'm sure you read Fool's Errand, my book about Afghanistan. And I have it on very good authority from Eric Margulies, the reporter who was the expert and who covered the Afghan war in the 1980s, who in the 1990s also covered the Taliban's rise to power. And he told me that in the year 2001, in the summer of 2001, he was at CIA-sponsored training camps in Afghanistan under Taliban control, not bin Laden's control, but Taliban training camps where they were training Uyghurs for use against China. And there's every reason to believe that some of those very same individual men were the ones who were rounded up by the George W. Bush government and sent to Guantanamo Bay, where they were tortured within an inch of their lives. Then, we know from various reporting, including Seymour Hersh, in his important article, The Red Line and the Rat Line, about the weapons transfers from Libya to Syria during the Obama years there, about, uh, I believe the number that he quoted there from his sources was 20,000 Uyghurs had been transferred through essentially like this Turkic pipeline across Central Asia through Turkey and into Syria to fight 
the jihad there in, in that dirty war. And at one point, apparently, they even had their own little town of their own that had been designated for them in the Idlib province by the Turkish government in the Idlib province that they had taken over after kicking the old inhabitants out, I guess. And then um, one more footnote there is Lawrence Wilkerson, who was chief of staff to Colin Powell and is a prominent you know, anti-war voice uh, ever since then, uh, has indicated that, in fact, I talked to him about this on the show myself, um, about that, yes, these Uyghurs still are under the control of America and our Turkic allies, which I'm not sure. I believe at the time we were talking about Kazakhstan and how they were keeping these guys safe there for us, not being used now, but for potential use in the event of a war with China. Now, that also means for potential use the day after tomorrow if they just want to attack a subway station or whatever kind of thing. And this is not to say that CIA lock, stock, and barrel owns every single thing that these guys do and say, but just like expats should be presumed liars, CIA looks like they should be presumed guilty here for being involved in stoking, you know, whatever kind of conflict is happening there. Not that that would absolve the Beijing government of whatever they had previously done or whatever they've done in reaction for it. But as Americans, it's our responsibility, and we know from history enough, it's incumbent on us to always begin the question with what do the Americans have to do with this? And sorry, I'm rambling, but one more. In 2018, our government, our military targeted ETIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement of these radical uh, Uyghurs, essentially Taliban types, if not bin Ladenites, training in the Wukan Corridor there with the Taliban in Afghanistan. And the Trump military, I don't know if Trump's government had anything to do with them, the military targeted them and bombed them. Well, shortly after that, the Trump government, meaning Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, took them off the terrorist list, which... You know, you got to wonder why even bother. It's not like they would go to jail for breaking the law on, you know, on a level of political power like that. And by taking them off the terrorist list, it just sends a signal loud and clear to the Chinese and to the whole world of what's going on here. You're not even trying to be secret about it. You're blowing your own whistle to start. That Here are these guys who are the Chinese Taliban. Or if not the Chinese Al-Qaeda, sometimes they seem to be a lot like the Chinese Al-Qaeda uh, at various times with some of their attacks. And the Trump government says, eh, yeah, they're with us. And so we're, you know, just like we're going back to the 80s or 90s uh, and, or even going back to the later Bush and Obama years, where we're just, our government is just pretending like September 11th never happened. And like our soldiers' war against al-Qaeda in Iraq and Iraq War II never happened. And that the real enemy is either the Shiites in Iran or the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing, or it's Vladimir Putin in Moscow, but it ain't the Bin Ladenites. They're still useful, even after everything we've been through with these guys' violence all this time. So, you know, it's not to say that the Chinese, uh, again, you know, would be justifying whatever it is they're doing, but it might give us cause to, you know, at least consider the position that our government is putting them in. Hey guys, I have some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com. 
by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Green Mill Supercritical is the award-winning leader in cannabis oil extraction. Their machines are absolute top of the line. They simply work better and accomplish more for less than any competitor in the world. We're talking anywhere from a couple of hundred thousand dollars for the base model and up. So this is for serious business people here. But the price, as they say, will be worth it. Green Mill Supercritical customers' investments pay for themselves oftentimes in just weeks. Simple enough for almost any operator. Deep enough for master technicians. Their new novel techniques for inline real-time winterization are leaving their competitors in the key. That's GreenMillSuperCritical.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history. Real economics. Real education. Then, so that's to set you up to ask then, so what is the Chinese government doing to these people, whether in reaction to terrorism or beyond that, beyond Adrian Zen's retracted uh, embellishments, What's the reality of the situation the best that you know? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to say, and you got to be really careful when you talk about this, too. And, and it is admitted by the Chinese Communist Party that there are facilities, and, and they place this all in the context of, being, of fighting ETIM. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it does seem that how they phrase it is that they have some kind of institutional control over the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and... They're bringing them in for vocational training, but also a, a, frame, a form of de-radicalization. And they, they have them at these facilities for a period of time, maybe a year or two, where they have them work, learn job skills, and then they, they release them. It's like a catch-and-release kind of situation. And, and again, that's not to justify what's going on or, or to say that it's all right, but this this also happens in the context of of the leaks from Adrian Zenz. It also happens in the context that the release happened at the same time that Michelle Bachelet, from the UN, she's the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, is doing a visit to Xinjiang when these files are released. So you have to know that the release was calculated for the maximum uh, geopolitical pressure, and and. While she's there, we know that the United States has condemned her visit. There have been different Uyghur groups and the United States saying that essentially it was a six-day uh, communist rally that, that Michelle Bachelet uh, engaged in. Uh, but for her part, she says that she had, she had access to these. She went to two different locations in Xinjiang, but she says that she had access to whatever she wanted, that she wasn't being like followed and surveilled, um, and, and she... Re- she, she, I think she had said to, to some of the representatives there that they, they should be better on humans, human rights, but she didn't go there making any condemnations or doing a severe inquest. Well, no, that can mean a lot of things. You know, United Nations representatives of this and that sort can be very biased in one way or the other or blind to. But still interesting that the U.S. didn't even want her there and kind of condemn the whole thing as a Potemkin tour before she has a chance to really see what's going on. But so she's verifying, essentially, as you say, 
Beijing also concedes that, like, yeah, we got work camps. What about it, right? So, but now they're forcibly rounding up not just convicts who commit crimes, but they're just basically putting fighting age males in these camps for re-education. Is that essentially the deal? Well, it's not only fighting age males; it is it is females too, and and. It seems like these are people that are accused of being involved somehow with ETIM or or something like that. At, at least, I mean, from from the CCP's perspective. I mean, yeah, but I mean, how many? What are the numbers that we're talking about? Do you have any idea? Hundreds of thousands a year, or no? Not I mean, tens of well, thousands. Well, Zen yeah. says over a million plus. Mm-hmm. So I, and it's I mean, it's unclear. That sounds pretty big for the ETIM movement, if you ask me. Right. You know what I mean? And yeah. look, I guess. You know, and and I know uh, your belief system. <laughs> We're friends, and yeah. I know how you look at the world. There's there are no apologists for the CCP here. Of only just for the reality. We end up sometimes arguing, you know, in what might seem like in the interest of David Koresh or Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi or Bashar Assad or Vladimir Putin or. Uh, Uh, Xi Jinping or whatever, but that's not the point. The point is just that America is the world empire. And that means that in the name of security, we're picking fights with everybody all the time. And as Americans, we just got to be honest about that and recognize that. And that again, it doesn't uh, acquit the people that we're up against, especially when you're talking about extremely powerful states like China, which, uh, what do you say? It was a totalitarian state and now it's just an authoritarian one, (laughs) but it's, still has an extreme i mean if if imagine the united states them having a one a two or a three child policy no way it's right. just not up to you we're free we don't tolerate that kind of thing they have a policy like that not just for the uyghurs but for everyone in china is essentially subject to that and i guess just like in the united states and everywhere else when you have an industrial revolution then you have a massive and painful move from town to country uh, by people you know farmers who, you know, are are essentially uprooted by one level of coercion or another from their farms and forced to go to the city and be re-educated and whatever. And so that's the central government's program there, right, is trying to make good Chinese citizens out of these country bumpkins, whether they're Uyghurs or whether they're Han. You focus on what they're doing to the Uyghurs, it looks like they're picking on the Uyghurs, but then you just got to zoom out and recognize Beijing picks on everybody. <laughs> That's the nature of their state. You think California is bad. Yeah, and I wanted to touch on, too, while we have time, the what, we have to ask the question, right, Scott, what, what can Americans do about this? If it is true, because it, it, it does appear that some of these documents are true, although there are credibility issues with some of it. And, and other things were like the presence of uh, traditional Chinese characters in some of the documents, which right. mainland Chinese, it, they use standard Chinese char- characters. And, and so there, there were some issues there. And some of, some of the detainee images appear that they could be computer generated because there's anomalies. Like there, there's things in, in the pictures that just don't seem right. Now, that doesn't prove anything. It's speculation. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, uh, and again, though, we, we have to ask, even if they were true, 
what what are we as Americans going to do that would make the situation better and not make it drastically worse? And one of the ways that it's making it worse sending the CIA, right? And oh, know what right. you were going to yes. say? No, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, one of the <laughs> Give con- them bombs. One of the concrete ways that it's making it worse is the the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And you mentioned Mike Pompeo earlier on his way out the door, the 11th hour um, as they turn over to the new Biden administration, he declares that China's committing genocide against the Uyghurs and crimes against humanity. While this, this accusation is endorsed by Antony Blinken as he comes in in the Biden administration, on December 23, 2021, Biden signs into law the Uyghur Forced Labor Preven- Prevention Act, and it's supposed to kick in, and it did kick in, June 21st of 2022. And what that does is it creates a rebuttable presumption that any good made wholly or in part in Xinjiang is illegal in the United States mm-hmm. and you can't import it. And, and, and again, let me emphasize, this is, this is a rebuttable presumption, meaning that it is on whoever wants to import these goods to prove that they weren't made with forced labor. Mm-hmm. And so how is this supposed to help the inhabitants of Xinjiang? These people need to sell goods, whether, I mean, again, of course I'm against forced labor, but at the same time, this is going to destroy industry in that country. Yeah. And the labor, yeah, the labor of everybody who's not being forced, Exactly. you know, yeah. And them too, collateral damage with them all. Clear and convincing evidence they have to show by, which I'm, I'm an attorney. And so clear and convincing is it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's a lot more than probable cause. Yeah. And look, people have to understand that if, just everything else was Mr. Rogers' neighborhood here. And America was simply saying, geez, we're really in a hurry to drop every sanction against you. We can as soon as we can, as soon as you guys start shaping up and flying right, then that would be one thing, I guess. But what we're talking about here is an excuse to level new sanctions that they'll never lift, no matter what happens in Xinjiang province. And now, there's one thing that you say about this guy, Adrian Sands, in the thing that I wish we'd uh, brought up earlier in the show, but it's really uh, worth bearing out. Correct me if I remember these numbers wrong, Patrick, but this was, and I think from Gareth Porter and Max Blumenthal's work at the Gray Zone, is just Gareth the Great went through and checked the numbers. And well, said, I think it was Max, actually. Oh, was it Max I that did the numbers? Okay. I'm listening to credit you. Credit words, too. You interviewed Gareth about this. I oh, okay. And he gave Max, credit to Max there. Okay. Yeah. So, and then it's just looking, I could have made this mistake, too, although I guess I wouldn't have made the claim until I knew I was sure. But you're saying that he simply misplaced a decimal point, but to a fatal degree here. Is that right? Well, the, the specific measure was net IUD insertions, and he was claiming that on net um, in Xinjiang province, they, it was that I think he said 87% of all net IUD insertions in China took place in Xinjiang, when right. in reality it, the number was 8.7. So he, he exaggerated it by a factor of 10. Right. And so the first one, well, the second one sounds completely benign. Right, that like it, it, it is, is a tad higher. I, I mean, I okay. will admit that. But what what does net IUD insertions even really mean? Though? Yeah, who knows? But it is government healthcare. So if you're getting uh, IUD, then you're getting it from the government. Now, who knows whether they're making you or not? After the fact, we're looking at statistics. Yeah, something for people to think about. <laughs> Making a cop your doctor if you really are sure that's a great idea. Yeah, but. Um, 
of IUD insertions in China going being implanted in women in Xinjiang. Well, that tells a whole other story. And that's where you get these claims of genocide. But then it turns out that that's completely bogus. And, you know, I remember seeing Josh Rogan from the Washington Post, the neocon hawk, on the Joe Rogan show. And he's talking about Zins. And he's talking about this stuff, the forced birth control. And I swear to God, he says, Rogan says to Rogan, I, uh, people quibble about the numbers, but anyway, yeah, they quibble about the numbers, whether they're forced sterilizing 87% of the population of Xinjiang province or whether they are in fact not doing anything of the sort at all. But Josh Rogan is a liar. People quibble about the numbers. I quibble about whether Josh Rogan is a liar. And poor Joe Rogan didn't know what to say. So he's like, wow, that sounds pretty bad. Yeah, it does sound pretty bad, but it's not true, you know? And anyway. I, I believe that Josh Rogan was the individual who came up with this open source investigation of all the camps in Xinjiang with satellite images and tried to. But I think he's a part of this Australian defense, um, you know, think tank. Oh, I wouldn't be but, surprised yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to hear him dismiss this absolute devastating refutation of this fraud's claims as quibbling about the numbers a little bit in the way that he did is a fraud itself. It's just a damn fraud. Anyway, so it's uh, Patrick McFarlane uh, writing at the Libertarian Institute. And again, remind me the name of the article. Uh, it's Credibility and the Xinjiang Police Files. Credibility and the Xinjiang Police Files. And you have a series of articles, uh, what, four, five, or six going back, uh, taking a revisionist look at this story, right? I, I do. I have this one, and then I think there was another blog post I wrote, but there was another piece I put out in April of 2021 um, calling Independent Media Parrots Questionable Uyghur Genocide Claims. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a wordy title, but... Um, so I was just examining the place that this story has had in the independent media because mm -hmm. I, on some level, people watch the independent media and they think they're getting something other than the mainstream media, but that's not necessarily the case. Right. And uh, by the way, credit here to, to the Land Destroyer. Do you know the guy's real name? Do you remember what it is? Nathan Rich. Nathan Rich. Okay, that's the Land Destroyer blog guy. And I don't know him, but I've read his blog many times. And he you know, deserves a lot of credit for raising questions about this stuff Yeah, as he well. did. He, he really linked up NTD and the Epic Times with Falun Gong, um, which it's far too long to get into in this interview. It's a flying saucer but, cult, like the Heaven's Gate. Yeah, yeah. And, and so he linked them up and then showed that China Uncensored is... Uh, they're Falun Gong members, the cast is, and they're a part of New Tang Dynasty, NTD. So uh, it definitely, were, if you want to read about that, I, I talked all about it in that independent media parrots, you know, mm -hmm. Uyghur claims. Major conflict of interest there. Definitely. And the Epic Times, now that they fired my friend Ken Silva, I don't mind uh, blasting that part of, you know, uh, their role in this as well. Certainly they're not just a right-wing paper. They come very much hell-bent on this issue and many other surrounding uh, relations with China and the rest. All right. Well, everybody, that is Patrick McFarlane. He is at the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. And that is the show for this morning. Again, I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com and editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. 
I'm here every Sunday morning from 9 to 9.30 on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. See you next week.